You may be seated. Again, if you'd like to turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 12. Let me say, with your outline, I was going to get through twice as much, and I decided we're only going to get through the first two points. For one reason is because I love this part of the scriptures. It, it really reveals Paul's heart. I remember a story about John MacArthur, this individual. I'd listened to John MacArthur for years and years on Grace to You. Heard hundreds of sermons, apparently. And then finally one day, he actually met John MacArthur. Had some time to spend with him. And this was his comment to him. You know, John, you're actually nice. <laughs> like, what do you mean, nice? Well... Sometimes when you're preaching the word of God, maybe you seem harsh. Maybe Paul seems harsh to you. Cold, calculating, like a hammer. And by the way, Paul was. He can say some very hard things. He told the Galatians, who has bewitched you? How is it that you're following another Lord? He was harsh to the Galatians, but periodically in his books, you'll see him open his heart, as it were, and you can peer into the... uh, the apostle's heart, and you can see his tenderness. And I think in this passage you see this. In fact, you even see it with how he refers to him, like verse 12, brethren. But look at verse 19. And by the way, 12 to 20 is all one passage. We'll look at the second part next week. Verse 19, my little children whom I labor and birth again unto Christ. I mean, a mother who's laboring, little children, talking about a child before even, even uh, being able to speak. And again, I think that here Paul shows, as it were, his mother's heart, okay, a mothering heart, caring for his children, hoping that his children go in the right path. So again, we're going to spend a couple weeks on this passage because I think we're really able to see a better glimpse of who Paul was. The first thing we see in verse 12, brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. We see his personal appeal to them his personal appeal to them. I, I urge you to become like me. And, and you might say, well, what is he referring to there? Well, again, the Galatian church, the Galatian believers were dealing with legalism. They were thinking about going back to the law, somehow completing their salvation through the law. And, and I, I'm reminded of Philippians 3, verse 4, Uh, and following, where Paul says this. Do you remember this in Philippians 3? If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more. Remember that great uh, Pharisee, Saul? I had confidence in the flesh. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, concerning the law of Pharisee, and he goes on, names a number of the things that before salvation, Paul would have been putting in the positive category. He goes in verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, what I thought was positive, all the things I did with the law, these I counted as lost for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count that category as rubbish. Now think about this. This great Pharisee, Saul, looked at that category of all the things he had done, and his pedigree, as it were, and said it's rubbish. Heritage, rubbish. Legacy, rubbish. I count all those things as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, that was what he thought that you had to do, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. 
Paul said this, you know, I had confidence in the flesh, but then I came to Christ. I thought I was doing well, but then I came to Christ. And everything I thought was in the positive category became rubbish, dung, manure. Now, when he says, I urge you to become like me, I think partly he's saying it that way. He's saying, listen, just as I went from law to Christ, I'm asking you to remember those things. Don't go back, Galatians. Remember that your sufficiency is in Christ. Remember your completeness is in Christ. And as we've been talking the last few weeks, I I believe as believers we need to remember that. Everything that we have, we are complete in Christ, right? We don't need the law. But I think the other part of this, when he says, I urge you to become like me, I also think he's talking about that the scorn and the hate that some Jews had towards him was also his. In other words, when I came to Christ, there was a group of people that hated me, scorned me, wanted to kill me. See, I think part of what was going on in the Galatian church is people like to be liked. Do you realize that? It's amazing. People like to be liked. I'm sure the Judaizers came in, presented their, their truth, in quotes, which is falsehood. And I'm sure some people didn't want to make waves and just follow because they like to be liked. And I think partly Paul is saying this, I urge you to become like me. As I took up the cross, as I followed Christ, there was people that that scorned me, hated me, even wanted to kill me. I want you to be like me. I want you to be willing to suffer for the cross, suffer for the gospel. Again, we have to be willing to suffer for for the cross. Sometimes we don't. We like to be liked. Sometimes we know the truth and we're in a family get-together or around friends or at work and something's being said that is not the truth, but we like to be liked. And we don't want to have someone scorn us and perhaps mock us and even hate us so we don't say anything. Paul says, I urge you to become like me. Know the gospel, live the gospel, be willing to suffer for the gospel. You know, Paul had been freed from the bondage of circumcision Sabbath-keeping, dietary laws, all the rights, rituals, requirements. He had been free. Now think about this. He had been free. I like John 8. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed, and we should walk in that freedom. Do you remember the story of um, John Bunyan uh, Pilgrim? And, and before he came to the cross, he was, he, was, he was called graceless, actually, in Pilgrim's Progress. Remember that? He had a great burden. And the more he went to the book, which was the Bible, the more his burden grew. And finally, he looked to the the one who died on Calvary and the stone that was rolled away. and, 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 And he looked upon the cross. And what happened to the burden? It just released. And he was free and he had a a spring in his step and a song in his heart, right? Do you remember that day when, when, when that came to you? When the gospel came to you and you got saved? you remember how excited you were that your sins were finally forgiven? And then you learned about being made a son of God? Why would you ever go back to the law keeper? Why would you ever go back to the burden? And so I believe Paul is saying this, you know, I've been free. I urge you to become like me, for I, I became like you. Now, what does he mean, the second part of that? This is the second part of the appeal. I became like you. In other words... Corinthians uh, one nine says that Paul became all things to all men that I might by all means win some. In other words, because God had freed him, he was able to act and participate in the traditions of the Jews when he was around Jews. 
and the Gentiles when he was around Gentiles. In other words, he was not inhibited that he always had to do certain things around certain people. Now, that's huge. In other words, Paul said this, I made a sacrifice to be what you needed me to be so I could share the gospel. So he says, listen, I became, I urge you to become like me, but I also, I became like you. I I was willing to walk among you. I was willing to sacrifice for you. I gave, I I was patient with you and I showed you truth and now I want you to be like me and follow that truth because I gave you truth. That was his personal appeal to them. I I hope you live in the freedom that Christ has made you free, if indeed you are free, if indeed you have come to Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, that you would truly walk with him and not go back to the bondage of the law. He he does a second thing, though. He he mentions not only his personal appeal to them, but his remembrance of them. And this is where we're going to end, actually, today. Boy, this is going to be a short message. Second point, we're only going to deal with two. Well, it's going to be a little longer. Look at this, verse 12. By the way, verse 12, the last part of verse 12, really follows the point of of up to 16. It really doesn't, is not contained in, in the first part of verse 12. So it's really another point he's talking about. You have not injured me at all. Now he's looking back. He's looking back to when he was... You haven't injured me at all. The word injured means wronged. This is why he's saying that. I'm not bringing this up to you because I'm ticked at you. You know, sometimes parents, we get ticked at our kids and we wait for the right moment. Maybe we don't wait for the right moment. But then we lash out at them because you've wronged me and I want to tell you. Paul makes it clear, listen, I'm not bringing this up because I'm ticked at you. You haven't wronged me. You haven't injured me. Now, many had opposed Paul, but not these Galatians. These were the ones that he thought were true believers. So Paul harbored no resentment. He did not take their defection. And by the way, he was wondering about their defection. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 6. But he didn't take their defection or their potential defection as a personal insult. That's huge. See, when we, when we minister to people, they have to know that I'm, I'm telling you this because I love you, not because I'm ticked at you. Sometimes I think we minister out of a, out of a heart of frustration, anger, and irritation. But Paul made it clear, I didn't, I'm, not, I'm not bringing this up because you injured me. He understood they were immature Believers, most likely, very impressionable, as babies often are, young children are, young believers even are, okay? In fact, they were fickle. Remember when he was in uh, Lystra? They came in and um, they wanted to, they identified uh, Barnabas and him as, as gods, you know, and wanted to basically worship them. No, no, no. And then, and then like in the next sentence, it says, and they stoned Paul. <laughs> you know, brought him way up high and then wanted to stone him. I mean, they're fickle. By the way, people are fickle. Praise you one moment, crucify you the next. Does that sound familiar? Um, you know, people are fickle, but he, he's saying, listen, but I'm not holding this as against you like you've personally wronged me. And then he, the, he gets even more personal about his, um, his physical health. Um, look at verse 13. You know that... Because of physical infirmity, that word is disease, probably some of the uh, translations say that, I preached the gospel to you at first. You know, he, he talks about his personal illness. In other words, when I was with you, 
I had a disease. I had an illness. Now, some suggest that he had picked up malaria because of the, when he was in the swampy coast of Pamphylia on the Mediterranean. That's kind of like the common thought. There's a, there's a number of things where people are saying, I wonder what disease he had. Well, to be honest with you, we don't have a picture of Paul and we don't have a journal of Paul, exactly what he had. But probably it had some type of disease like malaria. He had just gone through the swampy ish, uh, situation or uh, location of Pamphylia. Perhaps a mosquito bit him and now he has malaria. Was that his thorn in the flesh of 2 Corinthians 12? I don't know. I don't think so. But, but this is the point. If it was malaria, there would be times, this might be what happened. He had malaria and then he went to the higher regions of Galatia, the cooler areas, to, to, to help with his, um, to relieve the symptoms of malaria, which would be uh, bouts of fever, you know, and, and uh, pain. So he might have gone on the southern near the Mediterranean, got malaria, and actually went up to help with the symptoms of malaria. That's a real possibility. I'm not saying that is the actual truth. I don't know, but that is a real possibility that it could have been a disease like malaria. Others think that his his issue was not malaria, but an eyesight issue, Um, like a chronic difficulty with seeing. And look at verse 15. It says, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. That's kind of an indication. Maybe they saw that his eyes were bad. And if there could have been a transplant at that moment, they would have been the donor. Now, now think about how, how much love for him to say, you would have even given me your own eyes. I mean, these people really love Paul. By the way, in the ancient world, a man's eyes was considered his most valuable possession. They would have given him the most valuable thing they had is their own eyes, if, if possible. By the way, eye surgery couldn't have been done. Transplants couldn't have been done. But if, if it could have been, they would have done it. That's how much you love me, he says. It's probably hyperbole, an exaggeration. But the point was, you really love me. Man, when I gave you the truth, you were like willing to give me your own eyes. You might combine the malaria and the eyesight together because sometimes malaria attacks the optic nerve and you can lose color recognition, atrophy, or even blindness. So it might be both. It might have been that his malaria also created a problem with his eyesight. It's, it's no wonder that he had the physician Luke travel with him. I think maybe that wasn't just for, to be an encouragement in, as far as a ministry partner. I think he was actually ministering to him physically. So that, that's, those are some possibilities of this illness that he refers to. But, but I want to answer another question. What was the reason for the illness? Now, I don't mean uh, a mosquito bit him. Okay. No, let's look at the bigger picture. Uh, what place does suffering have in ministry? Because apparently he was really suffering. I, I would say this. One, God uses our problems to achieve his purpose. Right? What is Romans eight twenty eight? All things work together for good to those who to those who are called according to his purpose. His purpose. See, God brings hardship. I mean you might say, Man, the great great apostle Paul, why would you let him have illness? You know, give it to some guy over here that's not doing anything for you, Lord. Well no. He 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 allowed the apostle Paul to have the illness, and apparently it was severe. Now, bring that into your own life. 
do you ever do this? Lord, I will serve you when? And, and you put in this, well, when I, you know, I was bringing this, sometimes in our parenting class I was talking about this, you know, well, when my kids grow up. Or, but maybe it's like this, Lord, I will serve you when I get over this disease. Well, you may die with that disease. You know, what, how much are you willing to, to take in your own life and still serve God? Or do you just say, well, it's not, a, it's not a convenient time. You know, Fanny Crosby is a, a great example of uh, suffering, a suffering servant, in, in one sense, as far as his, her, her, uh, her, uh, her blindness. At six weeks old, she called a cold and developed inflammation of the eyes. By the way, she was in a very poor family. And the physician was out of town and a quack doctor came by and told the parents to put mustard plasters on her eyes as treatment. And because of that, she was blinded from that point on. Now, she could have got bitter angry, but, you know, she went on to be one of the most prolific hymnists uh, in history. She she wrote approximately 8,000-plus hymns and then wrote another 1,000 secular I mean, she was just a prolific writer. She did not spend her life in bitterness and defeat, but instead dedicated her life to Christ. At the age of eight, she wrote about her condition. This is what she wrote at the age of eight. Eight is what these kids had just left that age group. Okay, At eight years old, blinded, could never see again, she wrote, Oh, what happy soul I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. See, her heart understood that God had a purpose. Later she remarked, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God, and that's in quotes, the providence of God, that I should be blind all my life and I thank him for that dispensation. That's pretty hard when you say I actually thank him. I remember Johnny Erickson Tata said the same thing about her injury. This is what she goes on to say. Now, this is when she was older in life. If perfect earthly sight were offered to me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. Boy, how many times do the beautiful and interesting things around us move us away from the glory of God, right? At the end of her life, she wrote, When I get to heaven, the first face that shall be glad in my sight will be that of my Savior. That's what she looked forward to. I haven't been able to see all these years, but I will see the Savior someday. See, there's, a, there's an example of God using our problems to achieve his purpose. And in Paul's situation, the same thing is true. Whether he had malaria, eyesight, or another problem, the issue is this. He had something that could have stopped him from ministry, but, you know, he saw it as a, a greater purpose for ministry. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 12:9, I believe this, that God keeps his servants powerful through humility because of our our issues, our diseases, our needs, whatever they might be. Remember 2 Corinthians 12, 9? And he, that's God, said to me, now this is after Paul prayed about his thorn in the flesh. By the way, I personally think that thorn in the flesh was a person. I mean, Paul had issues. He might have had an eye issue, malaria. He also had the issues of his body. I mean, he was stoned, shipwrecked. I mean, can you imagine this guy? He must have been a disaster case. 
as far as physically. But I think it was even harder than this thorn in the flesh. But notice what he says about whatever the thorns in the flesh are. My grace, this is what God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmity. Now that word infirmity is the same exact word infirmity in verse 13 in Galatians 4. So I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, God keeps his servants powerful through being humbled. Sometimes when we get humbled, we get angry. I've been there, you've been there. In fact, Paul says in verse 10, next verse in chapter 12, 9 of Corinthians, when I am weak, what? Then I'm strong. So again, I ask you, what infirmities do you have? What needs do you have? What distresses do you have? What reproaches do you have that will keep you out of ministry? Sometimes we, sometimes we show that we don't believe of the, gloriness of the, of the glory, gloriousness of the gospel because we, we back down so quick because of our own personal hurts. You know, it's interesting um, that, well, nah, it's, it's, it's interesting for another day. <laughs> The clock keeps ticking, and I know you're going to get up and leave a quarter up. <laughs> Let's look at another, another aspect of this. What was their response? What was their response? Well, it says in verse 14, In my trial, which was in the flesh, you did not despise or reject. Now, by the way, he's talking now. this is when I originally came to you. My trial, this infirmity, you did not re- uh, despise or reject. That word trial is found in James chapter 1. Uh, my brethren, count all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, what's interesting is that same word trial is used in uh, James a few verses later about temptation. It's parismos. The idea is this. Any situation in your life can either be a trial to strengthen you or a temptation to destroy you. That's real important to remember. See, he uses the word trial in the sense that this actually strengthened me and strengthened the Galatians. But the same trial that strengthens one person may destroy another person because they don't trust God through it. Um, The same sun that hardens clay melts butter. The same issue of life that you're going through either may cause depression in your life or may cause you to depend on God all the more. With... Fanny Crosby, blindness could have made her bitter, but it made her better, right? So here he says, listen, my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise. And I mean, this is how they received him. The word despise means to count little and and look at or reject him. It means to spit. Because the pagans, when they would see somebody with infirmities, would literally spit when the person went by. Can you imagine going down the street? All these people are spitting at your feet. That, that just showed like utter disdain. But he said, you didn't do that. You, you didn't despise me and you didn't reject me. You didn't spurn. Again, this suggests that whatever Paul's condition was, whatever illness or injury he had, it was unsightly, unattractive, and it was visually repulsive. I mean, it wasn't just some small thing. He said, listen, you didn't spit at me. You actually received me. 
You love me. By the way, aren't we outward people? We so often judge people outwardly. Again, the pagans did. The Gentiles definitely did. They felt like any disease was directly related to God's judgment or demonic activity or both. But the Jews did the same thing. You remember when the Jews asked Jesus, or his disciples asked Jesus about the blind beggar? Rabbi, who sinned? Who sinned? You know, who created God's judgment on this person, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It is natural to look at the outward. And yet Paul looks at the Galatians and said, Listen, when I came and I had, I must have been repulsive to you, but you, re- you received me. That says something about their heart. And it's the same way today, again, with us in America. In fact, uh, David Jeremiah, if you don't get his devotional, I'd encourage you, davidjeremiah.com and sign up for his uh, weekly devotional, or daily devotional. But anyways, this, this week he, he did um, a thing on Yogi, Yogi Berra. It, quote, when Yogi Berra started playing in the major leagues, he was subjected to cruel criticism and cutting remarks. Fans and foes called him the Neanderthal man or an ape because of his look, uh, odd looks and awkward style. An umpire inducted him into the, quote, all-ugly club. He was compared to a gorilla in flannels. <laughs> but he later wrote, as the razzes kept coming, I, I just tried to ignore and play along. Some of the opposing players would hang from the top of the dugout like an ape in a jungle. I'd just brush that stuff off and tell anybody it didn't matter if, if you're ugly in this racket because all you've got to do is hit the ball, and I never saw anybody hit one with his face. <laughs> I mean, only Yogi could say it like that. But, but look at verse 14, the second part of verse 14. You receive me like an angel from God. Even as Christ himself, Christ Jesus... And like I said in verse, chapter, verse 15, verse, uh, the second part, I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. I mean, they received him. By the way, an angel of God, angels uh, were sent to present messages to humanity. You received me like an angel, even as Christ. I mean, now, now think about this. They were in darkness. Christ came, or Paul came. Paul shared the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And the, the, the shackles fell off of the Galatians. They got saved. I mean, they, they, they understood through the glorious gospel that if they received Christ, they could be forgiven and be made sons of God. Can you imagine how ecstatic they were? You see why they said, he said, you'd even given me your own eyes because, because the message was so glorious, you just love me. And it wasn't about Paul, but he's saying, you know, you received the message. Because you love the message. You love the fact that you were declared righteous in Christ, that you had his imputed righteousness, that you were reconciled to God, that you were made joint heirs of Christ. You know, one thing I keep thinking back to is my own salvation. Am I, am I excited about Christ? Sometimes you get saved, you're all excited, but then it wanes. We need to, re, we need to keep going back to the basic truth of the gospel because that will, that will excite you for Jesus Christ. But for these people, they were excited. They received Christ. They loved him. They cared for Paul. They were willing to sacrifice for him because he was the messenger, the one sent by God to give him the message of the good news. 
And look at verse 15. What then was the blessing you enjoy? What was, he's asking a question. What was the blessing? And that word blessing has, means happiness. implies a feeling of joy and fulfillment and con- contentment. In other words, the Galatians, as one man said, counted themselves happy when they first heard the gospel. Like, man, of all the people in the Mediterranean that heard the news, we were the ones. Of all the ones that God sent a messenger to, we were the ones. And they were happy, they were contented, and, and they were thanking God. I mean, can you just, I mean, they were brought from dark, you know, we live in what we call a Christian nation, which isn't, but the point is, is you can get the gospel. Can you imagine being paganism? And then this guy comes in, this guy probably with runny eyes, and probably, you know, bouts of fever, and, and you could have, but you received what, and then you heard what he says, and all of a sudden it was the glorious gospel, and you got saved. And you were praising God, and then you were like, man, what can I do for you, Paul? Thank you for coming to our town. They just loved him. Which really reminds me of what should a pastor be. You know, in America, a pastor's responsibility sometimes becomes really long, long list when really it should be a lot shorter. What is a pastor's responsibility? What is a shepherd's responsibility? What is an elder's responsibility? By the way, I look at elder, shepherd, pastor as all the same man. So that means this. How many pastors do we have in our church? Come on now. Six. Bob Lee, Mike, Nate, Charlie, myself. What should a pastor's responsibility be? For Paul, you know what it was? Preach the truth. Preach the word. Give out the gospel. Give out the good news. Teach them. One man came up with a a, a description of a perfect pastor. After hundreds of years, a model pastor has been found to suit everyone. The, the, The key word is everyone. He preaches exactly 20 minutes and then sits down. He condemns sin but never upsets anyone. He works from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. in every type of work from preaching to being the janitor. He is 28 years old and has been preaching for 30 years. He is tall and short, thin and heavy set, and very handsome. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and spends all of his time with older folks. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He makes 15 calls a day on church members, spends all of his time evangelizing the unchurched, and is always in his office when needed. See, sometimes we have such a job description for a pastor, it just kills him. See, a pastor should be evaluated by the faithfulness to the Word of God. Uh, By the way, I'm very thankful. I've been here for almost 25 years. And and I, and I, I, I lend that to about three things. Now, four. God's called me here. Most important. Uh, I believe in that call to be here. Uh, I really believe a lot of it has to do with the elders of this church. They have supported me along the whole way. And the last thing is you've been very gracious to me. It takes a lot to be to be anywhere for 25 years. It takes a lot for Bob Baker to be here for 25 years. <laughs> Bob's been here longer than I have. Lee and Donna. Or Lee, but Donna right behind, beside. Mike, right? I mean... But the point is, is sometimes, you know, and I've been in, I, I was in a church one time, and I'll tell you, the list was so long, and there was griping and complaining, and you know what? It's hard to stay there. Richard DeHaan, the, the son of the founder of uh, Daily, what is it, Daily Walk, is that correct? No, uh, 
daily bread. He wrote something else about a pastor that it's kind of similar, but it's different, but I think it's important. He says, what is a pastor? If the pastor is young, they say he lacks experience. If his hair is gray, he's getting too old for the young people. If he has five children, he has too many. Has too many. If he has no children, he's setting a bad example. If he preaches from his notes, he has canned sermons and is dry. If his messages are extemporaneous, he isn't deep. If he's attentive to the poor people of the church, they claim he's playing to the grandstand. If he pays attention to the wealthy, he's trying to be an aristocrat. If he uses too many illustrations, he neglects the text. If he doesn't use enough stories, he isn't clear. If he condemns wrong, he's cranky. If he doesn't preach against sin, he's a compromiser. If he preaches the truth, he's offensive. If he doesn't preach the truth, he's a hypocrite. If he fails to please everybody, he's hurting the church and ought to leave. If he doesn't please, if he does please everybody, he has no convictions. If he drives an old car, he shames his congregation. If he drives a new car, he's setting his affection on earthly things. If he preaches all the time, then the people get tired of hearing one man. If he invites guest preachers, uh, he's shirking his responsibility. If he receives a large salary, he's a mercenary. If he receives a small salary, well, they say he isn't worth much anyway. Everyone has expectations. And the problem is sometimes people get burned out trying to live up to expectations. You know what we really need to do is have God's expectation. Go real quickly to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll we'll be back in Galatians and we'll try to wrap this up. Galatians chapter 4. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. This is Jesus Christ himself that, God, or that Paul is speaking of. In verse 11, Ephesians 4:11, And he himself, that's like a double, he himself, it's trying to emphasize, he himself, Jesus Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. The and brings it together, pastor-teachers, teaching pastors, teaching elders. Purpose, verse 12. For, that's purpose, that's goal. For, what? The equipping of the saints. For the equipping of the saints. Why am I here? Why is Bob Baker here? Why are any of the elders here? Why are we shepherds? By the way, the word pastor is interesting because it's used 18 times in the New Testament. The word is poinmen. 17 of those times. Okay, 18 times it's used. 17 times, okay? It is translated the word shepherd. I really wish it had said shepherd teachers. Because somehow when it says pastor teachers, it makes me like different. Like you're laity and I'm clergy. And really in the scriptures, it's not like that. It's, it's, you, the word is used 18 times. Only one time is that word poinman used and translated pastor. And it's right here. Every other time it's used of shepherd. And if you think of a shepherd, a shepherd is a feeder. He protects the flock, defends the flock, loves the flock, his sheep. He, he guards them, he guides them, he leads them. And if you think of it from a, a standpoint of the church, shepherds with the sheep of the church, it's all done through the word of God. You protect the flock with the word of God, you defend the flock, you love the flock, you care for the flock. But it all rever- revolves around ministering the word of God to the flock. So he equips... That word equip is real interesting. It was used 
of mending nets. You know, you would come in from a, a fishing and there would be a hole in the net. And what would you do? You'd have to mend the nets. And sometimes in people's lives, you have to mend their lives. They have holes. They have problems. And pastors and elders mend them. Or a setting of a bone. You know, bone is broke. Probably shouldn't tell you this, but I, will. I think I have. A couple of years ago, my son hurt his arm, jumped over a mattress, hurt his arm. And I just told him, you know, just, just, you know, why don't you just go watch a TV program? <laughs> he watched like an hour, and then I said, well, why don't you just go lay down? You know, he said, eh, it hurts a little bit, you know. And um, so my wife came home then. So I was by myself. <laughs> it's always dangerous when dad's there by himself. And uh, she said, I said, well, you know, Colton hurt his arm, but I'm sure it's okay. And um, he was laying on the couch, and, and she said, well, let me see it. And I, I said, well, you know, why don't you stand up? Colton and, you know, show, show her. You know, I get a little nervous at that point. And uh, he, he stood up, and literally the arm was like this. Right here looked like this. It was a double break. Yeah, I know, I'm not a good father. But the point is, <laughs> bottom line is we went down to the hospital and got a reset because it would never be functionable that way. And that's how that word is used, that word Equip is used that way, that sometimes we have to set a bone. He's not saying physically. I'm saying somebody has broke something in their spiritual life and we help bring it back to being set. And if you look at Colt now, you never know it. By the way, I just, you know what I didn't do is I didn't have them... Why do women know how to do this? You know, like stand up and stand straight. I didn't think that way. I just looked at it like close and it looked, didn't look that bad, you know. She doesn't go anywhere anymore. Um... <laughs> The last way that this word equipping is used is this, a fitting a, a ship for a long journey. Now think about this, fixing a net, setting a bone, and, and putting all the supplies needed on a ship for a long journey. That's what a shepherd does. We equip, we furnish. Through the word of God, we help them, help you to be equipped, full grown, mature, whatever. And he said, so, now look at this, verse 12, so that you can do the work of the ministry. This is, a, this is not me doing the work in the ministry or Bob doing the work in the ministry. This is us helping you be equipped, fully equipped, so that you can also participate in the work of the ministry. Look at, for the edifying of the body of Christ, that we would all be made and grow towards perfection. And if you read the rest of Ephesians to verse 16, it will say that, that you would be complete. He uses this idea of complete or, or whole. So that's what a pastor should do. Uh, I'm trying to answer this. Uh, how, is it, how can we live together so that we work well together as shepherds and flock? I think the first thing is, again, know why God gave shepherds. <laughs> and I think Ephesians 4 is very clear. I think the second thing is be patient. I think that's the second major thing, be patient. To survive and flourish in a church long term, a pastor needs to know why he is there and the body needs to be patient and know why he is there and why they are there. And again, it goes back to Ephesians chapter 4 where it says that they would do the work of the ministry. Sometimes the body forgets that you are also part of the ministry. By the way, I haven't found that in this body. I mean, I find it periodically by how people speak. But for the most part, I think everyone knows, you know what, we all work together. 
This is just, you know, and I'm no more important, and Bob and Lee, and, uh, and name them, are no more important. It's just that we have a certain job to do, and you have a certain job to do. And the whole point is to pull everybody, move everybody towards perfection. Don't let that scare you. It means maturity in Christ. So we need to know, and we need to be patient. Perhaps that is why pastors leave after four to seven years. The average pastor leaves after four to seven years. Well, maybe, maybe because the expectations of the people are so great that they leave and start over at another church with an old set of sermon notes. Now think about that. He leaves this church, goes to the next church. Now he has an old set of sermon notes. He can preach that again. Which then gives him the opportunity to try to fulfill all the other expectations that this new church has. And then after the sermon notes are done, what does he do? He goes on to another church. And maybe we have to stop and say, you know what, maybe these expectations are not even what God wants, you know. John Brown said this, happy is the Christian church when the pastor, the elders, love his people and the people love, his, love the minister or the elders for the truth's sake. But look at the problem. If you just go very quickly to Galatians, there is a problem. Because now Paul says, man, you would have given me your, your eyes But look at verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? There's been a radical change since the time Paul left till now. Apparently the Judaizers had had turned the Galatians against Paul. And you wonder, how did that happen? Well, they presented this other truth, which wasn't the truth at all. You know, you've got to go back to the law. You've got to keep the law. If you're going to be a good Christian, you've got to keep the law. And probably through gossip and slander and malice, they were ruining the lives of the Galatians as well as destroying the ministry. And Paul actually says, have I become your enemy because I tell you truth? You know, truth is not always a balm. It's not always a balm. Sometimes it feels like a whip. Sometimes it offends. And sometimes the hearers turn on the messenger and not just the message. And I think that's what happened here. I mean, here was Paul, he loved, and you said, man, you would have given me your eyes, you were so focused, so joyful over the truth, and now you've turned. And it was because of them that you turned, the Judaizers. But it's because, I mean, have I offended you? I'm just telling you the truth. You know, let's always remember this. It's the most loving thing to tell someone truth. Now, sometimes truth hits hard. And by the way, you don't have to blast somebody. I'm not talking about that type of truth-telling. But I'm saying you speak the truth in love, like Ephesians says, but it's the most loving thing to tell someone truth. And yet Paul says, have I become your enemy because I tell you truth? Glenn Wheeler wrote, Who Changed? Let me read this as we close. There was a preacher whom I used to like. I thought he, he was great. His sermons were wonderful as long as I liked him. His speech was passing fair as long as I liked him. He lived a clean life as long as I liked him. He was a hard worker as long as I liked him. He was the man for the job as long as I liked him. In fact, I was strong for him as long as I liked him. But he offended me one day. Whether he knew it or not, I do not know. Since that day, he has ceased to be a good preacher. His sermons are not so wonderful since he offended me. His speech is is of no account since he offended me. His faults are more prominent since he offended me. He is not a hard worker since he offended me. 
He is not the man for the job since he offended me. In fact, I am trying to turn everybody against him and get rid of him since he offended me. It's really a shame he's changed so much. Who's changed? Sometimes it's the person in the pew, right? Remember this, that a whisperer, a gossip, separates even the best of friends. The best of friends can be separated by a a gossip. And sometimes that's what happens in a church, and I think that's exactly what happened with Galatians. They loved him, he left, and then the Judaizers, and before long they turned against him, and now he's even able to use the word enemy. Yeah, it's hard to be a shepherd. And again, I'm not saying me, pastor. I'm saying shepherd. It's hard to lead this church of God. I I would ask that you would pray for uh, the elders of this church, the shepherds of this church. Because again, sometimes it it feels uh, very um, draining. But again, we do it because of love's sake for the Lord. We do it for for the preciousness of his people. But sometimes we feel like Jay Kessler He said this, Ministers out there are dying because the congregation expects them to walk on water. Then he says this, I feel like a cow that's been milked too many times. (laughs) Yeah, you'll probably remember that illustration over the rest. You ever feel like a cow that's been milked too many times? It isn't just the pastors that sometimes feel that way. Sometimes it's you. You're in the ministry. And you feel so dry. But you know what? You can go to the Lord and he can revive you. You can go to the Lord and he can renew you, right? That's why we need to be spending time in his word so that we have an overflow of milk to give to people. Now, overflow of the word to give, right? It's worth it because Jesus Christ came and died. His precious blood was spilt for the preciousness of the church. It's worth it. The ministry is worth it. Be a truth teller. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Yeah, if you have